Hey everyone, welcome to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch. Happy New Year to all of you from those of us here at OnScript. I hope that you've had a really nice holiday season and that you're well-rested for the coming year. Um, apologies for the sound quality of this. I'm recording right onto my laptop using my laptop microphone because I'm on holiday right now and didn't bring anything else with me. Uh, but yeah, that's how it is. And um, I hope that you are... Uh, looking forward to uh, another good year with OnScript, too. We've got some exciting new developments, which I've mentioned in previous episodes, including the fact that we've got a new theology stream on the podcast. And Amy Brown-Hughes has joined us as our newest co-host, and you'll hear that episode in about two weeks. And we're also still bringing you the uh, Every Other Week Biblical Studies podcast. So we're not diminishing that side of things. We're adding um, on, on this new theology stream. For this episode, we've got a rebroadcast of an old one, so bear with the sound quality on that as well. Um, the interviewee is John Barkley on his book, Paul and the Gift. As we've interviewed different guests, they've consistently said that John Barkley's Paul and the Gift is one of, if not the most significant book in biblical studies, at least for New Testament studies-focused uh, people uh, in the last 50 years. So it's well worth reading and hearing John talk about this book. And maybe you could make it a resolution in this new year to work your way through his monumental book. It's it's a it's a it's a rich read and will reward reading. If you want to see scholarship at its best, uh, read that book. Um, okay, so without further ado, enjoy Paul and the Gift. John M. G. Barclay is Lightfoot Professor of Divinity at Durham University in England, one of the most highly regarded professorships in the theological world, a post which John has held since 2003. Previously, he was a professor at Glasgow University and had served as a lecturer at the University of Cambridge. John's previous research work has been both wide-ranging and field-shaping. John's early work on Galatians, Obeying the Truth, 1988, is a classic study among Pauline scholars, and perhaps John will be able to comment on how this early monograph prepared the way for Paul and the Gift later on in our conversation. John has also showed a keen interest in the breadth of Judaism in the New Testament era, publishing books such as Jews in the Mediterranean Diaspora, 1996, and a commentary and translation of Josephus' Against Opion, 2007. In a 2011 published essay collection, Pauline Churches and the Diaspora Jews, John circled back to Paul, bringing his research on the social world of first century Judaism in the Diaspora to bear on the formation of Paul's communities. In addition to this, John has contributed numerous articles, edited volumes of essays, and supervised 50-plus doctoral students. Today we are discussing John's new book, Paul and the Gift. It's a rich theological contribution to Pauline studies. Again, John, thanks. We're glad you can talk with us today about your new book. Thank you very much. Now, John, unlike with my last two guests for OnScript, Josh Jipp and Mike Gorman, I've actually never met you before in person. I've heard you speak at SBL, you know, a few times, uh, but we've never been formally introduced. So we need to break the ice with the get to know each other question. Uh, is that okay? Absolutely. Sure. All right. Now, I think we'll both agree that eating a meal together was important uh, in antiquity in forging social bonds. It's not terribly different today, although there are some differences. Uh, but so here's the situation, John. I'm barbecuing, even though it's winter, may not be a great idea, but I invite you, and if you're married, then your wife, too, over to dinner, and you're gracious, you accept the invitation. 
uh, and you have the opportunity to contribute contribute something to the meal here, John. Um, so uh, I, now I haven't told you you have to do this, uh, but it's your opportunity, you know, to provide a gift, you know, to bring some food or, or a beverage or something like that. Uh, what are you going to bring me, John? Okay, well, if you were anywhere near here, I'd bring you some um, wonderful sausages from our very, very uh, good farm. There's a farm near here that does uh, keeps uh, pigs and sheep and uh, and cattle, sells its own meat and high quality homegrown uh, meat. I'd also bring you a bottle of New Zealand Pinot Noir from Central Otago. I've spent some time in New Zealand. Uh, got to love New Zealand wine. So uh, some sausages and some wine. How about that? John, I like you. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yes, I love sausages. And uh, I, I'm rather fi- fond of wine, although I might have chosen a Cabernet Sauvignon, but I would certainly try your Pinot Noir. Um, now, uh, and uh, and you've honored me, you know, because uh, these are uh, these are some pretty uh, pretty precious gifts you're bringing here in terms of food offerings. Uh, so you've you've uh, you've done something to replicate uh, social uh, camaraderie and bonds. Uh, so we've already uh, we've already then uh, entered into a little bit, I suppose, of our, our topic for today, uh, which is uh, the giving of gifts. Uh, but how about a follow up question here? Uh, let, you're coming to my barbecue now. I just I just want to know what are you going to wear, John? Are you uh, are you going to be wearing your sports coat, uh, jeans, and a sweater? Uh, if this is an informal occasion, what do you what have you got on? Uh, yeah, probably jeans. Um, if it's decent weather, a t-shirt with a with a light jacket, something like that. Yeah, but it's not hot enough for that right now here in Durham. <laughs> <laughs> well. That- well, that's good. You seem like, you know, that uh, you're a very professional man, and uh, I might have felt uncomfortable if you'd worn a sports coat to my barbecue. Uh-huh. So I'm glad you can put on a T-shirt when you need to. <laughs> All right, John, I think the ice is sufficiently broken here. Um, but I'm going to make you uncomfortable for just a minute by just unabashedly praising your book. Uh, this book's absolutely smashing, uh, among the best I've ever read on policyology, and I've got to just congratulate you. Now, I'm, I'm not going to ask you to respond to that because any response might be a little bit awkward for you, uh, but I want listeners to understand, read Paul and the Gift. I hope this conversation gives our listeners a small sense of why this book is so terrific. So, John, let's get to your book. Uh, biblical scholars and theologians are more accustomed to hearing about grace than about gift. Your choice of gift rather than grace in the title, it seems significant. What are you trying to signal? Yes, uh, as I was uh, working on this topic of the meaning of grace in Paul, I began to realize that the only way I could properly understand it was by putting what Paul says about this topic in the context of ancient understandings of gift. After all, the very language that Paul uses, the most common word he uses is, of course, charis. Um, The language he uses is the ordinary Greek language for gift or favor or benefit. It's not a special theological word. You find this word all over the ancient sources, letters and inscriptions and texts of all sort of people uh, give thanks for gifts or favors and benefits. So uh, I realized that... um, I needed to put what Paul says on on this subject in the context of how gifts operated in the Jewish world and in the Greco-Roman world more widely. Um, and I think, uh, as I, I think through some of your results there, I thought one of the most important results as you began to apply this, you know, kind of anthropological perspective on gift uh, was the idea that the pure gift is a modern construct. 
Can you explain what we might mean by a pure gift and comment on where we see this idea of the pure gift arising? Yes, I, as I as I worked on how gifts work, I realized that gift a gift relationship is multifaceted and can have many different uh, dimensions and many different ways in which a gift can be, as it were, an excellent gift. For instance, you might say a really excellent gift or a perfect gift is one given uh, first, the uh, priority of the gift. Or you might say an excellent gift is one given um, to somebody who doesn't even deserve the gift, what I call the incongruity of the gift. And I've worked out a kind of taxonomy of different ways in which in the ancient world, as today, one can, uh, what I call, perfect or draw to an end of the line extreme of the notion of a really uh, wonderful gift. And in the course of this, I realized that one of the ways in which we think of the pure or the free gift particularly is is uh, the, the, uh, the notion that the really best gift is a gift that expects um, no return and that has no return, that is a one-way gift. And uh, certainly whenever I ask people, uh, uh, my friends nowadays, I often ask people, what do you think makes a gift a gift? And they say, oh, it's a, a gift is a gift if it has no strings attached, if it has no expectation of a return. And as I worked on this I, and in the ancient sources, I realized that isn't the normal expectation of gifts in antiquity. The normal expectation is that gifts create relationship and create mutuality and do expect a return. It may be a return gift or it may be the return of gratitude. Uh, or of honor. So, uh, and I began to realize also that Paul, when he talks about gifts, also has some expectation of a return. That's maybe a subject we come back to later. But then I thought, well, then where does this notion come from? This notion that the best gift is a gift, as we say, with no strings attached, with no expectation of return. And I, I began to realize that this is not a universal notion, it's not common in, in, in cultures other than Western cultures, and it's not an ancient version, it's really a modern product. So I've tried to trace in the book some of the social, economic, historical, philosophical uh, 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 reasons for our, I think, peculiarly modern notion that a pure gift uh, um, uh, is a gift with no return. Now, you've already touched on this a little bit, um, and your second chapter introduces these you know, six analytical tools for kind of probing the gift, uh, and I think you, you sort of mentioned the idea of incongruity or the priority of the gift um, and, uh, and the notion of perfecting a gift, uh, or excuse me, of perfecting a concept. Uh, could, you, could you elaborate on what you mean by perfection, and then maybe we can work through some of these uh, six different ways in which you talk about it being perfected? Sure. Um, the notion of of perfecting a concept is one that I got from um, a literary theorist called uh, Kenneth Burke. Uh, the idea is that we, when we're talking about gifts, and particularly when we're talking about divine gifts, which is what this book is primarily about, we tend to uh, draw the concept to an extreme, or draw the concept to its sort of most, to its purest or most perfect point. Um, I mean, we use the word perfect when we talk about, let's say, a perfect storm, which has everything, everything that's stormy about a storm comes together uh, in what we call a perfect storm. And But even if we don't use the word perfect, um, we, we do tend to draw concepts, whether for the purpose of uh, polemics or whether for the purpose of, of, of clarity or definition, uh, we tend to draw concepts to, as, as, it were, as it were, an end of the line extreme. The purest version of X is such and such. So I was interested in the fact that, uh, and this was um, new to me and I, as, as I worked on it, I was interested in the fact that actually there was, there's more than one way 
of perfecting the notion of gift, of thinking about, as it were, the perfect gift. Um, it's not just a question of um, whether it's given first. It's not just a question of um, uh, whether it's given to someone who doesn't even deserve it. Uh, there are um, a, at least I've counted six different ways in which uh, we've tended in uh, the way we speak about gift. We've tended to draw it to this en- end of the line extreme. And what I discovered is if you disaggregate these different perfections, you realize that grace itself is a kind of multifaceted word and this helps to shed a lot of light on how different people have understood this concept and have disagreed with one another even though they're, they're all using or both using um, uh, uh, the same word uh, grace yeah and so you identify these these six perfections and uh, I have them I have them in my notes in front of me so I'm cheating here but yeah. superabundance uh, singularity uh, priority incongruity, efficacy, and non-circularity. And uh, uh, maybe I'll just give an attempt to try to summarize those if I can, and you're going to have to help me out if I struggle because I'm not using my notes for this. Uh, <laughs> but when you talk about superabundance, then you're talking essentially about the size or the extent of the gift. Uh, a huge gift uh, would obviously be uh, a more ideal than a small one in terms of a perfection. Uh, the singularity, if I remember right, was talking about um, – uh, the the direction of the gift toward kindness, and especially when we're talking about God, about kindness rather than God's maybe tendency to judge. So a, a perfect grace might be one that um, that would preclude God ever needing to judge, even, or it could be perfected in that direction. Y- yes, uh, it's, it's the notion that God is a pure giver. That's to say, He gives and only and only gives, as it were. So you know, this has been important in the history of theology. That, that is God also a judge? Does God also exercise wrath? Does God also exercise judgment? And and there have been those who say, no, He's a God of grace uh, uh, and, and only a, a God of grace, and that's what I call the perfection of the of the singularity of grace. Yeah, and I, if I remember right, you uh, you noted especially Marcion for perfecting. Yes, this. yes, yeah. he's a very he's a very clear example. But there's many modern versions you could see as well. Yeah. Yes. All right, and so then the priority, uh, which would be the gift given in anticipation, uh, right yes. before the before the the person who's the recipient uh, would make any kind of hints uh, that the gift should be given, and you might even push that priority, uh, you know, into God's foreordained knowledge or something like that when talking yep. about God. Yeah. Um, and then we have the incongruity, and that's a major category for you in this book, uh, uh, which has to do with somebody not deserving the gift at all. Uh, efficacy, efficacy would be the idea, right, of, of uh, a good gift is one that achieves its purposes. Yep. So that, um, like, if you give me a bicycle to uh, to help me get to school, uh, if, I, uh, if I never learned to ride the bike and it, it doesn't work, uh, then it hasn't been an effective gift. But if you're perfecting it, well, then the gift achieves its purpose, right? Yes, and so if, if I can give you with the bicycle bicycle lessons, as it were, or the ability to ride the bike, then I've made that gift a fully efficacious gift. Yeah. Yes, good. All right, and then non-circularity, uh, which is this idea that, uh, that you already touched on with regard to the pure gift, uh, one that would be given with no strings attached and no expectation of a return gift. Yes, so there's one that's outside any circle of reciprocity. Yeah. 
Well, that's proof, uh, since I was able to do that without my notes, that I did actually <laughs> learn something from your book, John. Uh, so you can see it's been Good. helpful to me. Um, now, I love, John, your third chapter. It's a lengthy chapter, uh, and by lengthy, it was over 100 pages. And this might have been my favorite chapter. I don't know, although the whole book was just brilliant. Uh, but uh, I, you kind of trace through uh, famous Paul, uh, interpreters of Paul, and how they understood grace uh, and understood Paul on grace. Uh, mm. And uh, uh, I think that maybe it would be helpful uh, to maybe give a sample of that for our listeners. And I, I would say Martin Luther is without a doubt a, a watershed interpreter of Paul on grace. How does he tend to perfect it? Yes. Uh, uh, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed that chapter. I certainly enjoyed working on it and learned an awful lot from doing it. I've, I've tried to trace here how key figures like Marcion and Augustine Luther, uh, Calvin, and then coming to the uh, 20th century, Barth and Bultmann and so on, and more contemporary Pauline scholars, how they've understood uh, this word grace and how they've interpreted Paul uh, in this connection. And Luther, for me, um, is an extraordinary figure who um, rediscovers and re-emphasizes what I call the incongruity of grace. That's to say, for him, uh, the essential thing about grace is not just that God gives it generously in the sense of superabundantly, but that he gives uh, uh, paradigmatically, God gives to those who don't deserve it, that the, um, as he put it, the love of God does not find, but create that which is pleasing to him. So this notion that God does not reward the righteous, but justifies the unrighteous, that God does not, as it were, help the, um, those who are well, but, 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 but heals the sick and so on. This, this paradoxical structure of, of grace in Paul, um, Luther, uh, rediscovers and, um, turns into a, a kind of dynamic that shapes his whole understanding of of the Christian life. And what I've also felt uh, 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 important in Luther is one of the roots of this modern notion of non-reciprocity, uh, because Luther was very anxious that we should not think of uh, of anything that we do for God as eliciting uh, a further gift from God. He wanted to, as it were, break the normal patterns, uh, theological patterns where one thinks of God giving and we give back to God so that um, God gives again and so on in this endless cycle of reciprocity. He wanted to break out of that and emphasize the one way gift of God. God gives to us and does not uh, demand anything back and nothing we could give back to God would uh, be anything God needs. Uh, And he thought that this one way non-reciprocal structure of gift should be also how we give to other people that we give freely liberally nothing and needing nothing back and in uh, and wanting uh, nothing back because god gives us all uh, all that we need so that there, there's a, a dynamic in luther's theology which uh, um starts or is one of the causes i think of this um um especially modern notion of of um, the one-way gift, and it's deepened and made central, I think, to Immanuel Kant's philosophy, um, partly under the influence of Luther, of course. Um, but uh, uh, that's a very special feature of Luther. Um, but in general, what he did was sort of inject into you know the subsequent Protestant tradition this notion that it's the incongruity of gift which is which makes Paul so uh, 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 so radical. 
Yeah, one of the things that I guess as I think about kind of where your book ends up going is that you're going to ultimately suggest that there are some misalignments, right, between uh, Luther and Paul. And I thought one of the things you did in the conclusion of the book, especially, was talking about how uh, maybe Paul had focused this on the, uh, these questions on the exterior community more and that uh, Luther had internalized them and it sort of cut so that it cut through the heart, uh, perhaps, of each, uh, of each Christian. Yes. Um, do you want to comment any more on the misalignments? Sure, absolutely. I think uh, Paul's theology of, of gift is is um, in the context of and for the sake of his Gentile mission. So it, the incongruity of of grace for Paul is um, important in saying that uh, not, that there is no element of human worth that goes into God's uh, election or God's grace. So, and that's crucial for Paul because it means that. Um, uh, uh, God gives his grace without regard to ethnic worth, social worth, gender worth, and so on. So this uh, is about, for Paul, the formation of radically new communities that cut across social and ethnic uh, barriers. And it's in that context of mission and the formation of communities that Paul's uh, theology of, of grace is so, so you know, uh, takes its social effect. Now, what I find in Luther is in... Uh, rightly and understandably recontextualizing Paul's theology in the 16th century, uh, where you, uh, and in a context where you know, the churches are already formed, as it were, and live in a largely Christian environment, um, Luther uh, 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 adapts uh, and applies Paul's theology to, uh, as it were, an internal mission. Every, every, every believer, as it were, starts each day needing to hear hear the gospel applied to themselves, which radically undercuts their own pride in their own achievements or their own self-reliance and so on. So uh, um, this, this notion of the incongruity of grace is, as it were, uh, 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 redirected by Luther to the heart of every of every um, individual. Um, and that that uh, creates a momentum in Protestant thought that has generally applied the theology of grace, uh, uh, as you said in your introduction, to the to the uh, um, experience of, of the individual who um, uh, who can sing "Amazing Grace." You know, I once was lost and now I'm found; was blind and now I see. And and there's you know there's certainly um, good good reason to apply Pauline uh, theology in in that way. I'm not I'm not trying to. Uh, uh, dis that kind of theology, but I'm saying that uh, in its original context, and perhaps in, this is important for us in our new context, um, what Paul is doing is primarily uh, a, a, about the uh, formation of new communities, and this theology of grace enables them to um, uh, uh, stand at odds with the cultural systems of worth uh, in their in their ambient culture. Now you've already begun to probe into Paul a little bit, and that's terrific. Um, I wanted to to, uh, to do more of that uh, as we continue on in our interview, but I also wanted to step back and to probe into your own career a bit. 
Um, and uh, one of the things I'm curious about is what led you to this project. Uh, and we can go back as far as you want. If you want to tell me how you first got interested in a career as a biblical scholar uh, or about how some of your early work fed into this, however you want to handle that question, um, how did you get here? That's that's an interesting uh, question. I um, I started off as a student uh, studying classics, but before I went to university, uh, I had six months abroad in Pakistan. Uh, this is back in the 1970s. And that was my first exposure to uh, the developing world. And it's really shaped me in lots of ways in that issues of social justice, issues of, of development, issues of, of community and the identity of, of, of Christianity in, the, in its social and economic context. That, that, um, those have been questions that have been uh, on my mind um, uh, throughout my life since that point. I started off studying classics, then felt I didn't, I couldn't quite see it sort of, what sort of grip it had on, on, on the contemporary world. So I switched to theology and, uh, it, during the context of that, got interested in Paul. Uh, but I, I guess, you know, you might be able to see from that snippet of narrative that, um, the, I was always interested in, in what respects Paul uh, was a kind of uh, socially creative and socially innovative person uh, and, 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 and the dynamics of his churches in, in that connection. Now, when I started doing my PhD, which was in 1981, this was just in the wake of Ed Sanders' famous book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, which introduced uh, a new perspective on Judaism and, and therefore a new perspective on Paul. So I, my research on Paul was just at the time and there's a ferment of rethinking going on about how to construe Paul's theology and its relationship with Judaism. And Sanders famously said that um, on the subject of grace and works, there was really no difference between Paul and uh, Second Temple Judaism because Grace is everywhere in Second Temple Judaism. It's, a, it's what he called a covenantal gnomism. It begins with grace in election and covenant and then continues with the observance of the law. Uh, and I, I remember feeling ever since I did my PhD, uh, which, as you said at the beginning, became a book called Obeying the Truth, uh, a study of Paul's ethics in Galatians. E e ever since then, I felt there's something we haven't quite grasped here about Paul's theology of grace, it isn't just uh, uh, um, what everybody else was saying in antiquity, even in Jewish antiquity, uh, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was that was different. So this uh, project, Paul and the Gift, coming back to Pauline theology after all these years, um, is, is an attempt to uh, articulate what I've you know, recently come to see as um, a better way of understanding uh, Paul's theology of grace, setting it in the context of Second, Second Temple Judaism, not as Paul is ho is wholly unique and he believes in grace and other Jews don't believe in grace. On the contrary, saying everybody believes in grace in Second Temple Judaism, but what they mean by that can be very different things. And um, that's where the, the 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 six different perfections of grace helps us to see that, as I put it in this book, grace is everywhere in Second Temple Judaism, but not everywhere the same. Well, it's interesting to kind of think about how your experience in you know, the developing world um, shaped your interest. It seems like you've consistently been interested in using sociological tools, and that's fascinating to me uh, to hear to hear that, uh, that that was part of the stimulus for you. 
Um, and uh, it it seems like then, uh, and maybe I don't, maybe you can comment on whether this is right or not, that what drives you as a scholar then hasn't shifted that much. I think that's right. I think um, every every scholarly career has sort of different phases, or indeed it. You know, it's good if it does, because otherwise it one gets uh, a bit uh, tired working in just in one area. So after I'd done my PhD on Paul, I realized I wanted to do more of a Meeks type analysis of how um, uh, this is Wayne Meeks uh, type analysis of how um, Paul's uh, churches were formed as, as social entities. And I realized I really I needed to put them alongside uh, diaspora Jewish communities and i at that point realized i didn't know much about the jewish diaspora and also i didn't think there was a very good book out there which really pulled all the evidence together so hence i wrote uh, a book um called jews in the mediterranean diaspora really as a way of kind of educating myself about how judaism worked in antiquity and what kind of communities in 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 the jewish diaspora in the jewish diaspora looked like so i could compare them with pauline churches from that, I got interested in one particular text that I worked on during that period of research, which is Josephus's apologetic work against Appian, and found myself uh, enlisted in a, a larger Josephus project to write a commentary on a on that very interesting uh, 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 Jewish apologetic text, um, the best example of Jewish um, Jewish apologetics, and our best, ironically, our best evidence for anti-Judaism. Uh, uh, in antiquity as well. So uh, after I'd finished that project on Josephus, I felt like I don't really want to spend the rest of my life on Josephus, uh, but I do do want to go back to Paul. So that's why, you know, after, uh, if you like, uh, wandering around the diaspora for a while, I've uh, I've come back to Paul. Now, you started to talk about E.P. Sanders a little bit, and uh, mm. that's convenient, as that was uh, a place where I wanted to go anyway in terms of my discussion with you. And... Um, Kind of going back into Paul and maybe thinking about a more specific incident in one of Paul's letters, maybe you could map out how your reading differs from that of Sanders and some others. And let's just to make this concrete, uh, perhaps talking through uh, that very famous incident of the confrontation between uh, Peter and Paul in Galatians chapter 2 uh, uh, and over the issue of table fellowship. Um, how is it that your, your reading of, on grace and, and the gift how does that move us beyond the new perspective? I share I share um, quite a lot with the new perspective in terms of um, wanting to get away from old caricatures of Judaism as a religion of works righteousness or legalism, and I share with the new perspective uh, an interest in how Paul's theology grew out of and contributed to his Gentile mission. So. Uh, in terms of um, the significance of the, of the of the dispute about about food and so on, um, I also am interested in in how Paul's theology impacts on on the social formation of communities. What I um, think I've done in going beyond the new perspective is to inquire deeper. I think into the theological root of Paul's um, dispute with Peter there, are the theological reasons uh, why it's not um, good enough for Paul um, to expect uh, a Gentiles to take on um, Jewish um, Jewish practices like circumcision and Jewish food laws and so on. Um, the new perspective, which arose, really has its roots in the 1960s and 1970s, um, was inclined to explain Paul's policy 
by use of, of, of social or political motifs like uh, Paul's desire for equality or uh, what Stendhal called equal rights of Gentiles or his desire for, for inclusion and um, uh, universalism and so on. And I think those one might be able to use that sort of language at the end of the of the process. But I wanted to ask, well, what theologically uh, uh, drives this? Now, obviously, Tom Wright, a, um, a, a, a preeminent member of the New Perspective, is also interested in the theology of Paul. Um, but what I think I've uh, tried to do is put back at the center and, and explore in a new way uh, what is, at, uh, I think, at the center of Paul's theology, which is, his theology of grace. Um, in other words, to put this in, in textual terms, uh, the the discussion that begins with um, uh, the, the Antioch dispute uh, in Galatians two ends with I do not I do not reject the, um, the grace of God. Uh, it's all to do with Paul's understanding of the Christ event as God's uh, ultimate and definitive gift. Um, and what I argue is that it's because that gift is given without regard to worth, ethnic worth, or the worth defined by the Jewish Torah, um, that it releases the communities from uh, uh, having to uh, sit within uh, th- that uh, a particular cultural box, as it were, and, and, and any attempt to repackage the gospel uh, within one feel, uh, 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 within one ethnic or cultural frame is for Paul a denial of um, the gospel itself. So, if, if I was to maybe try to summarize some of um, some of what you've said and see if I if I do this fairly or to to kind of integrate some other ideas as well, but um, Dunn and Wright seem to have focused on a nationalistic idea around yes. works righteousness and that. Uh, they would want to say that uh, essentially that Paul uh, was opposed to restricting uh, uh, God's purposes to uh, national boundaries and was wanting to open this up to the Gentiles, of course, um, and that works of law specifically has to do with that. And, and you're wanting to push back and say that, uh, that in fact, uh, any kind of social capital uh, that we might bring, it's not having to do specifically with national identity or with, with deeds per se, mm. uh, but any kind of social capital that we might try to bring uh, is not going to work and that, that preempts grace in its widest sense. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Uh, yes, I think... Uh, the emphasis I put on the incongruity of grace is um, exactly that, that um, whatever social cultural capital um, we have, which that's to say the ways in which we define our, our worth or our value, the ways in which we create hierarchies uh, 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 of value, um, all of these, Paul, uh, as well, opens up for scrutiny uh, and, and, and brings it into question. So, the normal ways in which in antiquity you judge people's worth by their ethnic origin, their ancestry, or by their uh, uh, education, or by their wealth, or by uh, their gender, or their legal status, slave or free, and so on, all of these are, 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 um, are undermined. Uh, it, it, it may be uh, to do with uh, um, um, a moral achievement, but that is only as well one scale of value in, in antiquity. And what Paul is doing is not critiquing so much the ideology that one can earn one's way to salvation. He's critiquing the very notion that uh, any definition of worth uh, is what counts before God. John, let's 
Let's move to a new text here and talk about uh, that block at the beginning of Romans, Romans 118 to 320. Oftentimes mm. it's at least treated as a fairly cohesive block, yeah. uh, having to do with the establishment of universal human guilt and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, you want to probe into that a little bit, I think, and I think rightly so. Um, and uh, you, you do point out here, and here I'm, I'm reading from your, your uh, page uh, 466, you say this, if we can show that this eternal life, meaning the, the eternal life Paul's mentioned in Romans 225 and 229, is for Paul both an incongruous gift and the fitting completion of a life of good work, we will have solved a conundrum that, the, that renders the early chapters of Romans the greatest stumbling block for interpreters of Paul. So you feel like that many interpreters stumble over this issue, and uh, I think you're, you've put your finger on something important. So here's my question, and uh, perhaps this is maybe even the ultimate question for Paul's theology. How do these two go together, these two things, eternal life as an incongruous or unmerited gift, and eternal life as the fitting completion uh, of a life of good work. How do those two go together, uh, the idea of an incongruous and merited gift and mm. uh, as the completion of a life of good work? Well, I think they go together because um, the, 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 the good work is the product of the incongruous gift. That's to say the good work is not an add-on or not as a, a second chapter. After God gives the gift, it's then over to us to do our best in response. Um, in that sense, the the, the, the language of gift uh, might make us think of, uh, of of things, as it were, that are given and then something else is given back. Uh, what Paul is is uh, talking about here is the gift of the very self, as it were, the gift of of, of new creation, of, of new life, the gift of life that derives from the spirit and derives from the resurrection life of Christ. So, that when he's talking about these good works, these are works done by walking in the spirit. These are works done uh, as the product of being in Christ. So it matters for Paul that there is a fit. Uh, it matters. He, he doesn't just say, uh, well, you're saved by grace. So now you can go and do do whatever you like. That grace brings us into relationship with God and gives us, as I say, this very new self that Paul talks about in Romans 6. Um, but he expects, as Romans 6 indeed shows, that that new self is a life lived under grace and in obedience um, to righteousness, as he puts it there. So um, this this fit, this fittingness, which is what I think Romans 2 is talking about in uh, with its view on the on the last judgment, this fittingness is not. Uh, um, something that we uh, do uh, to earn a final uh, eschatological gift. It is rather the outgrowth, the evidence of the um, gift of God, which in this sense remains incongruous in that it was never our own creation. It was never our own formation. It was God that... that uh, um, uh, in an undeserved way, uh, brought this about within us, and this new life, which exists in the midst of our our, our, our mortal uh, uh, existence, uh, is what, as it were, bubbles up um, continually within us and produces this uh, good fruit that is uh, uh, approved um, at the last judgment. I think that's beautifully put, and. Um I'm certainly not the person that would do this, but let's just say, uh, you know, you've just presented some of this material and uh, you you have in the audience uh, an irate Protestant 
Uh, and uh, this is a question and answer session, and they step up to the microphone uh, during the Q&A after your presentation and say, you know, with all due respect, Professor Barclay, you're espousing a Catholic position, uh, that good works contribute to our justification, and and you've you've frankly just significantly departed from the Reformation tradition here. Uh, how are you going to, you know, assage uh, uh, the situation and, and take care of our irate friend? Uh, well, actually, I might take them back to Calvin. <laughs> I think what I what I've said uh, could have been pretty much was could have been pretty much said in exactly those terms uh, by Calvin, uh, who talked about the double grace, the grace of justification and the grace of sanctification. Um, but I, I think the key thing here is that the good works we're talking about are are not um, uh, so our own self-made achievements. They are not, uh, in, in that sense, the product of our of, of our own moral virtue. Um, they are the product and the effect of God's remaking of our own agency, the very self, as it were, that is active here. As Paul puts it, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Um, so that it seems to me, you know, we have to take very seriously the fact that Paul can can address his converts and say, if you sow to the spirit, you reap eternal life. If you sow to the flesh, you reap destruction. He, 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 he even, you know, to Christians, he can set before them uh, a, a possible uh, uh, alternative outcomes. Uh, but the um, sowing to the spirit is, as it were, a continuation of, of and a, a, a Holding on to and being held by the grip of God's uh, of God's grace, it's not something that we, as it were, built on our own foundations. Now, I, I kind of want to move to a, a slightly different topic, which may have to do with where you're going in your future research, uh, as you at least give some hints where you might be going in your future research. Uh, and this has to do with maybe the social implications of the gift. Uh, for Paul, in terms of how the Christian life uh, must be organized, now are you are you doing an exploration of that in your current work? Uh, would you put that a little bit differently than I've put it? Uh, what are you up to, and uh, are you willing to give us any hints? I guess as to where you think you're going to be going here. Sure. Um, I mean, I think this first book has uh, you know, opened up some questions about the identity of the church as a community and how it sits in its cultural and social environment and. I'm going to do some. I'm going to write a more a more accessible, shorter uh, version of this book, which I th- hope draws out a bit more that kind of uh, capacity of grace to reimagine and to reframe uh, 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 and to reground the way that we um, uh, create Christian communities. Um, beyond that, though, um, the next sort of phase of my work on gift is to look particularly at um, at gift reciprocity at the human level. That's to say, to ask. What's the implications of Paul's theology? How does he draw it out for how uh, a community is created through reciprocity and through mutuality? I'm going to push back further against the modern notions of the one-way gift and the modern notions of altruism as well. Uh, And I'm going to argue that not only did Paul expect uh, there to be a mutual contribution from different members of the of, of, of the body of Christ, but that this is a, a healthier and better way of thinking about gift giving. Um, I'm, I'm interested, though, in what difference it makes to human reciprocity, the ways in which we um, do good to each other and um, support each other and give to each other, um, what difference it makes to put human relationships of gift within the wider context 
of God's gift to us. In other words, how is a relationship between me and you triangulated by uh, the fact that we're both drawing on the gift of God and ultimately answerable to and, and accountable to God. So those are the kind of questions I'm exploring. I haven't got full answers to those yet, but that's the next phase of my project, really. Well, thanks, John. Uh, Paul and a Gift is obviously primarily a work of historical analysis, but with deep implications for the church, and it sounds like uh, the subsequent project will be as well. Um, and I'll be curious to see uh, what you bring to light for us, uh, undoubtedly. Um, and so, you know, we've uh, as we kind of uh, wrap this up here, and, uh, and, and, and I want to touch on uh, maybe if you want to draw out a little more fully what you think this might mean for the church. Now, I don't know much about your precise relationship with the church. Mm. Now, we've, we've, mm. had a, our, we've had our barbecue dinner together now, right? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I've eaten your sausage and, and drank your wine, uh, but I, I still don't know you well enough to probe into your precise relationship to the church. But uh, do you want to comment on how you, you hope um, this, this project, Paul and the Gift, your next project, uh, how you hope they might make a contribution uh, to church, to world? Do you have anything you'd like to say in that direction? Sure. Um, so let me uh, say a little bit more about myself here. I live in a little village, uh, an old mining uh, community outside the city of Durham. Um, it's a village uh, where most of the inhabitants were themselves um, uh, coal miners or are, are, are descendants of such. So it's a, a village with a, a large range of social uh, social levels and educational backgrounds. So in the little Anglican church, which is the only church in, in the village, uh, we have a, a rich mixture of people of different uh, ages, different educational background, different social status. Uh, and we also have a, a home in the village for adults with with severe learning difficulties, and two of the two of the members of, of that community come along to our church. I'm telling you all that because uh, for me, uh, um, the richness of God's grace is uh, uh, bites home to me when in that community we together receive the Eucharist. Um, I'm an Anglican. Um, the Eucharist as the uh, uh, as the expression of God's unconditioned grace. So there we all are uh, kneeling together, absolutely, as it were, in the same place. In that context, it matters not one whit uh, before God, whether I'm a university professor. Uh, it matters not one whit uh, uh, where, where I am, as it were, on the social pecking order, because uh, in terms of God's grace, uh, we are all absolutely on a level. And um, I find that very liberating, and I find... That a kind of for me uh, a sort of it stamps on my mind the image of a of, of a church that is you know multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-level uh, um, uh, socially, where it, new types of community are created that don't uh, follow the normal um, uh, 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 um, uh, the normal patterns of social interaction and social exclusion. Um, so that is uh, one way I want to, um, you know, help the church um, think about its uh, its necessary sort of inner, inner diversity and how and how the working and, and living with Christians very different from oneself helps uh, helps us to, as it were, dissolve the uh, uh, um, the ways that we somewhat automatically assume that people like us are the best kind of people or people like us are the best kind of kind of Christians. Um, 
The other thing that, um, you know, he'll be a bit autobiographical here too. One of the things that interests me in this little village I work in is how the church can be a member of a wider community um, whereby uh, we're not just patronizingly, as it were, one way doing good for the community, but are also benefiting from uh, mutual relationships of gift within the community. So this brings in questions of how the church in the UK, for instance, responds to um, the ever-increasing gaps in social welfare, uh, 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 um, how the church in the UK de- deals with uh, uh, with immigration and so on. A lot of sort of wider social and political questions that relate to this question of well, how do gifts work, and how should and how do they work best, and how do they work in a way. That enables everybody to be a giver and not just a recipient of the gift. So um, those kind of questions, which, as I say, have quite wide social and political implications, are going to be reverberating in my head as I as I as, as I do the next um, uh, stage of this project. Well, you've left us with some beautiful images there—the image of everybody equal before God taking the Eucharist, uh, the image of the Church uh, in this position of uh, of, of mutual bene- uh, benefiting. Uh, with respect to the world, uh, some marvelous images. Many thanks, John, for the conversation today. It's been splendid for me, and I feel confident that our listeners uh, have undoubtedly equally enjoyed themselves. Uh, thanks very much indeed for uh, for um, for this conversation, which I've enjoyed very much. You're you're welcome. It, Paul and the Gifts a tremendous achievement, and I'd like to exhort any listener who hasn't read it to hasten, hasten, <laughs> read it at once. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. Today we've been talking with Professor John M.G. Barclay about his new book, Paul and the Gift with Erdman's. There's a link to Paul and the Gift on our website, onscript.study. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. <laughs>